0: We are reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel." This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: We are continuing our study this morning in the book of Hebrews, and we'll be looking at the passage that John read. And it's got a lot of confusing language, Uh, thunder, lightning, blazing lights, trumpets, and, and you're uh, saying, what in the world is this all about? It's a little bit of a departure from where we have been in the book of Hebrews. And so let me try to bring us up to speed a little bit because not everybody has been with us throughout the entirety of the study. The book of Hebrews makes a lot of comparisons and contrasts. For example, the writer... Um, will make a comparison and contrast between the Old Covenant and law of the Old Testament and the New Covenant as mediated by the Lord Jesus Christ he'll make a comparison and contrast between Jesus as our new and complete high priest and the Levitical priesthood of the Old Covenant in the Old Testament And he'll make a comparison and contrast between the things that are seen versus the things that are unseen. And all these comparisons and contrasts were written so that the original hearers and us as well will stay on track in our faith and run the race faithfully to its completion. And obviously his goal is to show the superiority of the Lord Jesus in everything. And so for the last several weeks, the writer of the book and consequently the sermons here have been about the race that we have been on. And those who have run it before us in faithfulness, the patriarchs and the saints of the Old Testament who ran the race faithfully and well and completed the course, to find themselves in the presence of God in all of eternity and most importantly our our final and chief witness who is cheering us on the Lord Jesus Christ who has run the same course that we have with much more to bear than we will ever bear and has faithfully completed the course and is waiting for us in his glory at the end. And so we're coming to kind of the conclusion of that section, and the writer uh, shifts gears ever so slightly, but he's still making these kinds of comparisons and contrasts, because the original hearers of the book of Hebrews had a temptation that is different but similar to ours. I'll first tell you how it's different. The original hearers were Jewish, by background by religion by ethnicity and their temptation was to leave their faith in Christ and go back to the faith that they had in the old system the law the covenant the temple the priesthood the sacrificial system and it was a real temptation after all it was a God-ordained system and and their people had been following that system for very very long time but but that's not necessarily the temptation you and i have there are few here in the room and there are very few people uh, who are in protestant churches around our country and around the world whose temptation is to drift back into orthodox judaism i mean that's not our temptation it's not our temptation to want to go back to the sacrificial system and to start offering lambs as sacrifices. Nor is it our our temptation to necessarily go back to the priesthood and, and all those other kinds of things. So there is, in a way, a disconnect for us. But there are some similarities in this. These people were tempted to go back to what I'll call Sinai. You see, Sinai was the mountain from which came Moses with the law. And we'll look at that in a few minutes. But our temptation, and when I say our today, I don't necessarily mean the people in this room, but I just mean mankind's temptation is to create our own little Sinai's. And here's what I mean by that. You see, the Old Testament, when the law came down from the mountain, it was known that it was written by the hands of God. And it came with miraculous displays. And people were filled with fear when the law came. And as the law developed, it became difficult and challenging. But it also had an appeal to it because you could see it and you could touch it and you knew the rules and so you wanted to keep the rules or face the punishment of God and so people can create their own little sinais so conservative Christian people don't like the old covenant because it was hard and scary so we create our own And we come up with new lists, not necessarily in the Bible, of of things that one should do or shouldn't do. Standards by which we can measure ourselves. And these lists come from individuals, and they also come from institutions. And they're very handy. You know, they're very handy because, number one, man controls these little Sinai's and we can create them in a very manageable way, and and they are a litmus test by which we can measure ourselves so that we can, when we come to the end of our race, appeal to our list of do's and don'ts and, and figure out whether or not we have measured up. On the liberal side of things, it's, it's much easier and much broader. And, and basically the little Sinai's that are created um, are, are much more based on, on the cultural standards of the day. If you're broad enough in your thinking and you accept enough people and, and you have a standard that encompasses most everybody, you're probably okay. Of course, if you don't fit into that category, you're not okay. And so the little Sinai is created as well, isn't it? And, and so depending on how well you move through life and your inclusion of other people will determine whether or not your Sinai is, is safe and secure. And this is where there's a tremendous amount of similarities between the original hearers and us. And us. But there is another difference that I want to point out, and I, I have failed to point this out with much more clarity, and so I wanted to do it today. Last week, I pointed out three things, that the race in which we are engaged needs to be run hard, and it needs to be run together as God's people, and it needs to be run against. In other words, there are things that we are to be cautious about and that we are to stand against. And when we're running the race, we are to run against certain things along with other things. And so the idea that I came away with this was this glorious picture of us running the race together and encouraging each other in peace without dissension and so on and so forth, which the text outlined for us. And I gave the example of of a triathlon, you know, and as I watched that, that TV program, and I saw the throngs of people, hundreds, probably thousands of people, encouraging those who were running the race, you know. Now there's a difference, though, between that and what the original hearers were having happen to them. You see, because their family and friends we're actually telling them to stop their family and friends were telling them to turn around and go back to the starting gate their family and friends were telling them as they ran you're making a mistake and you're going the wrong direction come back to us can you imagine running a marathon and there's your mother and your father And your brother and your sister and your former priest saying, you idiot, you're going the wrong way. That's why running the race together is so vitally important. Because we're running in the race in a foreign ground, in a foreign territory, and and everybody on the sideline, aside from the great cloud of witnesses, And the Lord Jesus Christ, both of whom are unseen, are telling us, You idiots, you're going the wrong way. Turn around, come back and join us. So, really, really, at this point in the book of Hebrews, we have two groups of allies, and only two groups of allies. Those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to continue to encourage us along the race. The great cloud of witnesses of chapter 11 and, and the saints who are unnamed who have run the race before us and have completed the race along with the Lord Jesus Christ who is the author and perfecter of the faith that is given us. But the last thing by way of comparison which is a difference but also a similarity, is that we see those on the sidelines, just like the original hearers saw those on the sidelines. The original hearers had friends and family in the church who were encouraging them, as we have friends and family in the church who are encouraging us But the great cloud of witnesses in the Lord Jesus Christ and the prize at the end is unseen. And that is difficult. And what our friends who were the original hearers were tempted to go back to is what was seen. Is what was seen. And so the temptation is great and it's real. Because right down the street is the temple where I can offer a sacrifice and And see the priest and see my friends and hear God's word read in a place, but my faith in Christ has replaced that. But my faith in Christ, in a very real way, is unseen. And so it's hard, isn't it? It was hard for them and it's hard for us. It's hard for us to stay on course, to, to when the world around us and when these folks had their family and friends saying, You idiot, you're going the wrong way. The temptation can get real. And the more pressure that's exerted upon us, the greater the temptation is. So the picture today that's painted for us in verses 18 to 21 are the pictures that the author paints of what they're tempted to go back to and what they have in Christ that is unseen. And we need to hear about both. So let me read verses 18 to 21. I'm going to read these terrifying words again, then I'll tell you the context in which they come from and then take us to that context so that we can understand a little bit more. The writer says, for you have not come to what may be touch as example a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given that even if a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned. Indeed, so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, what the writer is doing is is reminding these Jewish readers of the day upon which God gave the law to Moses in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the big granddaddy Charlton Heston moment. but it was way bigger than the movie. He says, what you have come to, you can't touch, you can't see, you can't hear like that. Now what I want us to do, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, is turn to Exodus chapter 19. Because Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20 are the two chapters in which what I'm gonna say is the, the law started. Okay, This was the introduction of the law. And I'm going to read several sections of chapter 19 so we can get a feel for it. Because these original hearers, when they heard that language, would instantly have known what the original writer was talking about. Because it was so embedded in their history and their thought and what they were tempted to go back to. And so let me start at verse 1 and read a few verses. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And then they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, and while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountains, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Got the picture? The entire nation of Israel, hundreds of thousands of people, are at the base of Mount Sinai, Moses is called to the summit. God says, I want you to tell the people one thing. Remember that I delivered you from Egypt and I gathered you like an eagle. You are mine. That's the setting. Middle of the desert, big mountain, God speaking to one man. This is how the people responded in verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. God spoke, the people responded, Moses delivered their response. This is what I want from you. They said, no problem. Moses delivered the message to God. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. So they got all ready to meet the Lord and to hear from him on Mount Sinai. Down to verse 16, and on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and every, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the peoples in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand on the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And Moses went to the top of the mountain, and he returned with the stone tablets written with the finger of God, the law. That's not part, I mean, I don't know how to say it. It is part of our history, but not part of our history. A Jewish family that would have heard this in the first century would have felt it. They would have known it. Not only would they have had the words memorized, but it would have been carried down throughout the generations word-for-word by their ancestors. And they would have heard things like, and your great-great-great-grandfather trembled and fell to the ground. I mean a terrifying moment when God institutes the law with his people. But there's also something terribly appealing about it, isn't there? I mean, there's some of us in a perverse way that say, I wish I could have been there. Even though it would have been terrifying. Because it's real. And I could have seen it. And I could have heard it. And I could have experienced it. And God spoke. But the writer of Hebrews says, When you came to faith in Christ, you didn't come to something like this. I understand the appeal, I think he is saying underneath, but you have not come to this. This is not what your experience in Christ is like, nor is it what you should be coming to look for. So back to Hebrews 12. It was such a terrifying moment that Moses himself, who was center stage, said, I tremble with fear. And, and in verse 20, it says, For they could not endure the order that was given. The orders were so strict when the law of God was given that if an animal strayed to the foothills of Mount Sinai, it needed to be taken out of the camp and stoned. And the same was true for the people who were there. This was a serious event. There was a weight to the giving of the first covenant, the law of the Old Testament, that that was extraordinary, but strangely appealing, you know? Strangely appealing, because you could touch it, and you could hear it, and you could see it. By contrast, the writer shifts, and he says, this is what you've come to in Christ. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is a, is a fascinating term used throughout the Bible, Sometimes it represents the city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem was where the temple was and the temple was the representative place of the presence of God. But Mount Zion does not always refer to the earthly city of Jerusalem as we'll find out here. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. In the past your people came to Mount Zion and were given the Old Testament law. Under the new covenant under Christ you have come to Mount Zion the heavenly Jerusalem the city in which God dwells eternally. Now this is a tricky bit of business, and I'll explain why. I'll confuse you, then try to make it clear. It says here in the present tense that we and the original hearers have been brought to the heavenly Jerusalem. I have never seen the heavenly Jerusalem. It is a reality, I believe in it, but I've never been there. So it is an already, but a not yet kind of thing. Does that make sense? It is a reality that I and our former hearers of this book are citizens of this heavenly Zion, the city of God in heaven. I am a citizen of that place, even though I've never been there. Now, this is a terrible, only because it's a cheap analogy, but it works. I do have a passport. On the front of it, it says, Citizen of the United States of America. And it's got a stamp or two and all the rest of it. But, but that is where I am a resident. And whether I am in Spain or Brazil or Turkey, I am still a citizen of the United States of America, despite my location. I am a citizen of heaven despite the fact that I am not there. So, when we came to faith in Christ, we were made citizens of the kingdom of God, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's number one. But it's tricky and it's difficult for us, as it was for our original hearers, because we cannot see it, right? It's tough. It's an already and a not yet. I am a resident, I am a citizen of the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and I have been brought to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. Now that means nothing to us, but it's a great season for us to think about it. Because throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, what do we have? We have angels gathering, singing their praise to the living God. It took place at the birth of the Lord Jesus. It took place in other times throughout scripture. It comes up in Revelation where the saints are singing along with the heavenly hosts in praise to God. We are not only gathered into citizenship in heaven we are now part of the festal choir who gives this king his praise but it's not seen yes it's not seen i understand that i understand the challenge of that but he continues and is reminding them of what they have been brought into and you have been brought into the assembly of the firstborn Now, what in the world does that mean? It means really very little to us. But in the ancient world, the firstborn were the inheritors. They were the ones that got the goods. And that's why throughout the scriptures you see strife between the firstborn and the secondborn and so on and so forth, right? This is why it was such a big deal last week when Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. The firstborn are the inheritors. But here it says, we are part of the assembly of the firstborn. In other words, everyone who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a firstborn. We are all inheritors. And everyone inherits the full goodness, grace, and completeness of what God has given us in Christ. We are the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We have been brought into the community of saints who have run the race before us. And we have been brought before God who is the judge. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus Christ is spoken of as the judge. But there is a vast difference, you see. We say it in the Apostles' Creed when we say the Apostles' Creed. He is the judge of the living and the dead. But when we stand before God the judge, there is a vast difference. We will be judged on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us and not based on the old Mount Sinai or the little Mount Sinai's that we create. We will be judged by the merit of the Lord Jesus and what he has accomplished for us when we stand before this judge. And lastly in verse 24, to Jesus we have been brought to, who is the mediator of the new covenant, and who has sprinkled us with his blood that speaks better a better word than the blood of Abel. Now we looked at Abel in chapter 11. And I want to explain this, this uh, comparison between the blood of Christ and the blood of Abel. In Genesis when Abel was killed by his brother Cain. It said that his blood cried out from the ground for judgment. The blood of Abel... Represented judgment, you know, and Cain was judged by God for killing his own brother. The blood of Christ has removed judgment from us. Because he has taken the judgment upon himself for us. And blood no longer need to be shed. And this is what makes, and I hesitate to use this word, the old covenant obsolete. Blood no longer needs to be shed because the blood of Christ is complete and removes judgment because he has taken it upon himself and therefore is much better than the blood of Abel. In in all seriousness, and I commend this to you. If you were to read verses twenty-three through twenty-four, I'm sorry, twenty-two to twenty-four, every day between now and Christmas, you couldn't sing a better hymn, a better Christmas carol. Now now what I want to say is, is very real, and I'm not being silly here. It can be challenging to stay on course and keep running when the world is telling us, you idiots, turn around and go back to the start. And it's difficult because I cannot see the heavenly Jerusalem. I cannot hear the angelic choir. I cannot see the faces of the saints Who have gone before me, and I cannot touch what Christ has accomplished for me. But this is called faith, not blind faith at all, faith based on what Christ has done for us. In sprinkling us with his blood so that judgment will be made and has been made on him instead of me. So that my heavenly citizenship is secure and certain in the glorious presence of God for all eternity. And I will exchange faith for sight one day. And I hope it is soon. And so what he is calling these people toward and calling us to is don't exchange faith for sight. Don't do it. Because what you have come to in Christ is infinitely better infinitely greater I know the appeal of thunder and lightning I know the appeal of stone tablets and Mount Sinai's whether made by God or made by man but Christ is the author perfecter and mediator of our faith and he is the one who is calling us home let's pray Father To speak of the eternal is dangerous and hallowed and I feel inadequate to the task. To make comparisons between the Sinai of old and what Christ has done in calling us citizens of heaven is extraordinary. May this text wash over us in this season to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.